Let me open us with a word of prayer, and we'll jump into our study in 1 Peter. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and the honor we have of being called your children. Lord, we know it's a privilege and honor we did not earn and we don't deserve. And yet you chose to set your love upon us, even though from any perspective of holiness we were unlovable. We thank you, Lord, that you saved us from a life of sin, that you drew us to yourself in spite of us. And we thank you, Lord, that after saving us, you haven't thrown us away, even though we failed you many times. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us today as we have the opportunity to gather as a church family. I pray for our Sunday school class, that the teaching would be clear and that you would help keep me from muddying waters that don't need to be muddied. And I pray that what I'm trying to communicate will come across by the power of your spirit. I pray for Pastor Steve both this morning and tonight with the preaching of your word. And I pray, Lord, for all of us as we have the opportunity to come back tonight and not only participate in the worship service, but we have the opportunity tonight to celebrate the Lord's table as a church family. I pray that people would return and that we would have an opportunity to um, remember what you did for us on the cross. I pray, Lord, that you would help heal all those who are sick. There are many people in our midst who are still struggling with illness. And I pray that you would restore us to health so that we can continue to serve you. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are going to begin talking about the last verses in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Verses 22 to 25 end the book. And in one sense, everything that follows is a continuation of the mindset of be holy as I am holy. I really think that summarizes the ultimate point. And Peter's going to go through and show us how to be holy in various aspects of life. As you recall, as I've said week after week, this letter was written to Christians who were under pressure. They were struggling. Many of them were being persecuted for their faith. Life was difficult. And Peter was holding out to them the reality that no matter what your troubles, God still expects you to be holy. And the beginning of the book, Peter went to great lengths to explain the privileges that we have in our salvation. Even though life is tough, we actually have been blessed. We're not cursed by those difficulties. The believers were tired. They were struggling. But God, in his infinite mercy, chose to redeem sinners like us through Jesus Christ. Through God's mercy, we've been born again. And rather than our hardships being a uh, negative, they're actually a positive because they allow us to display our faith. But as Peter is laying all of this out, he makes it clear that our salvation is not the ending point, it's the beginning point. Our salvation carries with it expectations and responsibilities from God. We're not saved to be placed in a museum display case so people can go by and say, hey, there's another one. No, we are on display, but on display in the activity of our lives, living for Christ, living in obedience. And Peter began making it clear that we have to think differently and we have to live differently. We have to have self-control over our minds to make sure we're reflecting and thinking upon the appropriate things. And we have to have self-control over our actions because the ultimate command is be holy as God is holy. 
That's just a brief summary, really, of what precedes our verses today. And as we come to verse 22, I think, even though it's a new thought in one sense, grammatically it's a new thought, the reality is it's just building off of that foundation. You've been saved. You should think and live differently. That encompasses holiness. Now, what does that look like in various areas? The instructions throughout the rest of the book show what a holy life looks like. And the starting point for the discussion in our verses today is something relatively simple. I think it's very simple and yet it's very elusive. Everything we'll talk about this morning is building up to a discussion of a particular fulfillment of the second greatest commandment. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. Well, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And in this context, what Peter is going to show us is that living out that command of the second greatest commandment, Jesus said it was the second greatest, Matthew 22, 36 to 39. Loving our neighbor has a specific application within the church. We're actually not just talking about the generic love we have to the world. What we're going to see over the next week or two weeks, probably at least two weeks, maybe three weeks, is the specific command that we're supposed to love each other. It goes beyond just the general love we have. And Jesus made it clear our neighbor is not just our friend. But in this context, Peter is talking about a very specific fulfillment. We are supposed to love one another. Now, as I come to these verses, and I'm about to read them to you, that's ultimately the overarching point, love one another. But as I began to get into my studies, I kind of realize there's some preliminary things I need to talk about. So follow along with me as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now, I'm going to provide a simple outline for this. And it's just two principles of loving one another. Two principles of loving one another. And yet, as we get into it, you're going to realize that by the time I'm done today, I won't fully have explained the first one. I don't recall ever having taught where I didn't even get through the first point, but I'm not going to get through the first point. So I'm going to tell you what it is, and you're going to have to trust me after I'm done talking that next week you're going to see it. But the first principle of loving one another is that loving one another is mandated by God. Loving one another is mandated by God. This is on display in verse 22, and I think you probably heard it when I read it, and you'll see it again. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently love one another from the heart's the command. But we're not going to get to the command yet. I have to confess, when I first 
started studying this, it was that whole first part of the sentence that kind of puzzled me. If you were to see how I do my notes, and I think I've shared it before, I have printed out on a computer printout all of the verses, and I just go through with a pencil and I make notes, and I write question marks, and I write references, and I ask myself questions about the text, and I ask myself a very interesting question about that first part of this verse 22. I said, what does this mean? It didn't jump off the page at me. In fact, it seemed a little redundant. Wait a second, it's talking about a sincere love of the brethren, then it's talking about fervent love of the brethren, it kind of had me puzzled. The second part's not so tricky, it's a command. But the first part caused me to start to think. And as I began to study, it caused me to think some more, because it's not so clear what it means. And then the more I studied, I came to a conclusion of what I think it means, and then I realized how deep this little clause can be. So I'm going to try and break down some different parts, as I often do. I try and pull things apart, and then I try and put it back together. The challenge is making sure that I put all the pieces back in to the whole. But when you look at this opening clause, it starts out, and the version that I read from is the New American Standard, but they're all similar. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified... Now, from a simple perspective, this is looking at something that already occurred. This is looking at something that has happened in the past. The challenge is, what is the point of reference? He's looking back at something. He's treating it as having occurred. And I can tell you from a grammatical sense, it's something that occurred in the past that has continuing impacts now. But what's he talking about? There's really two primary possibilities. In fact, two primary possibilities that I didn't see. But as I studied this and I thought it through and I studied commentators that I trust, I realized commentators fall on two parts of this. And while I don't want to cause too much confusion, I am going to tell you in general what the two possibilities are. And then I'm going to explain to you why I've settled on one. It's possible when the writer says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, it's possible that the writer is talking about sanctification. That the writer is talking about a Christian walk in greater obedience. In other words, a Christian has looked at the Word of God, they've looked at their own lives, and they've seen Areas out of conformity to the will of God, and so they then become willing to repent and obey. So many of the commentaries that you would read on this would say, this is dealing with believers who are walking in obedience, and they're cleaning up their lives, and their lives are clean to a point that now Peter's going to talk to them about a duty to expand the love they have for one another. The idea would be, if that were the meaning, that they've become more and more morally pure by being more and more obedient. And one of the impacts of their increasing obedience is that they're beginning to look at other believers in the way they should look at them. When I was first studying, that's the idea I gravitated to because it made the most sense in my mind. Yet the more I've thought through things in the context of the entire letter, 
the more I'm persuaded of the second view which I'm about to share with you. Namely, Peter isn't looking back and saying you're obeying more. He's looking back to our salvation. He's looking back to the moment that we were born again. Peter is saying that since you have believed the gospel, since you heard the gospel and you responded appropriately to the gospel message, God has cleansed your hearts and now you have a new found affection for other Christians and this should lead you to obey the command that he's about to give. I'm convinced that it's the second alternative that's correct, but I want to go through it because the reason I initially rejected it is because there are some words that trip me up in the text. Now, again, there are some aspects of this that whichever interpretation one were take, it'd be similar. Again, since you have, Peter is looking back. I've already alluded to that. It has continuing impacts, but in both viewpoints, it's looking back at something that's already occurred. In addition, both viewpoints agree, at least in principle, that there was an act of the human will that responded in obedience. Since you have in obedience to the truth. So whatever is being talked about is in relationship to the word of God. That becomes very evident. The reason why I ran the whole text. In verse 23 it talks about the enduring word of God. Verse 25. The word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word which was preached to you. So when Peter references in obedience to the truth he's talking about in obedience to some aspect of the revelation of God we refer to as his word Jesus said sanctify them in the truth your word is truth John 17 17 so again both interpretations of verse 22 would acknowledge that this is in some respects something that happened in the past in response to the word But the interpretation really hinges on the next phrase. And this is where I want to explain some things. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. I couldn't think of a more sophisticated thing to say than this is where we put on our thinking caps. Because we have to really make sure we understand what's going on. And I tend to reflect on how much time I spend on a topic in class in part based on my own understanding. When I have to struggle to really understand something, I want to make sure that I do it justice because I think some of the questions that pop up in my mind probably pop up in your minds. So we want to approach this concept and this phrase logically and clearly but biblically as well. Now, if I pull out just for an explanatory purposes that clause in obedience to the truth, what you really have here is since you have purified your souls. Here is the challenge. If this is referring to our salvation, that doesn't sound right. If this is referring to the point in time in which we were born again, to say that I purified my soul sounds completely wrong. I know theologically at salvation, God purified me. 
God saved me. So how could Peter, if this is the correct interpretation, how could Peter say, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls? If he's talking about the moment of salvation, how could he be referring to something that you did? Because we know and we are taught strongly here that it's all of God. In fact, that's why I initially didn't really consider this position very much because that's the first thing that jumped out at me. Well, that can't be. But I think it is. And I think I can clarify it. And I want to clarify it before I'm accused of heresy. (laughs) But first, let me be clear. Peter is not saying in any way that we saved ourselves. And I'm not saying that. That's not what he's saying. Peter is not saying you saved yourself by your actions. And he's not saying that we were saved because we obeyed in some type of forensic sense. Meaning we obeyed enough to earn God's favor. We looked at our Bibles and we started obeying and we started obeying. And because we obeyed enough we were saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 would shoot that type of statement right through. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's not in dispute. That's true. And I don't think Peter's contradicting that. Rather... I think what Peter is doing is focusing on another aspect of salvation that we sometimes in our desire to glorify God through his sovereignty, which is a good and appropriate thing, sometimes we minimize another aspect of our salvation. All of this ties into something that I didn't understand when I was first saved. And in fact, it ties into something that when I first heard about it, I was so startled it had me as a grown man and a hardened lawyer so I thought I was in tears because I was worried was I really saved so let me try and wade into this so you see where I'm going but also so you understand what I think Peter is saying to us now I'm going to ask you to turn to a few different passages at the very least write them down because I'd like you to review these but turn if you will to Acts chapter 2 And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a few parts of something that occurred on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, what we see is the earliest preaching of the gospel after Jesus ascended into heaven. And all the believers were gathered together and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they started speaking in other languages that they didn't know. And people that spoke those other languages were hearing the God in their own words and they knew, wait a second, these are unlearned men, how in the world? Things were so bizarre that some people thought, well, I guess they're drunk. And Peter stood up and preached. Beginning at verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice... And declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And then he proceeded to clarify, these men aren't drunk. Rather, they are a fulfillment 
of the prophetic word of God through the prophet Joel. And Peter began preaching powerfully and with boldness. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, put an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter is powerfully sharing the truths of what just happened. And where I want us to see is as he's coming to the end of his sermon. Look down to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? That's the crux of all human existence. You just heard the gospel. What shall we do? Look carefully at what Peter says in verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't get sidetracked by that. He was saying the natural progression is you repent... Then you're baptized. He's not saying baptism was a part of salvation. All of scripture makes that clear. But he was very clear to them when they said, What shall we do? He said, Repent. But Peter wasn't done. Over in chapter 3, we see another account of Peter preaching. They healed a man, Peter and John. And people were amazed by it, beginning at verse 12 of Acts chapter 3. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Verse 19. They didn't ask the question. Peter gave them the answer. Therefore, repent 
and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now it's clear that Peter understands the gospel message and it's clear that Peter was preaching with the conviction that people's lives would be changed. And what we see again is repent. Now Peter knew that salvation is only through Jesus in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You don't have to necessarily turn there but in Acts chapter 10 we have the first time that we have recorded in scripture and we believe it's the first time that the Gentiles were preached to. Peter went to a man's house called Cornelius. God came to him in a dream. It was considered unclean to even do it. But he preached the same thing to the Gentiles he had preached to the Jews. Verse 42 of Acts chapter 10. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So we see Peter saying repent. We see him saying believe. And this isn't just the preaching of Peter. Peter's preaching is very relevant since he wrote the letter that we're studying. But understand that theologically Peter was saying what others said. Powerful example of this, probably familiar to us, is in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we have an account where Paul and Silas are in prison. A lot of fascinating things about that account, but at one point, supernaturally it was possible for them to walk out of prison. But they didn't. But the jailer didn't know that. And we see this at verse 27 of Acts chapter 16. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. That was the punishment. If you're in charge of the jail and all the prisoners are gone, you're going to be killed. So he was just going to save everybody the trouble. Verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Paul and Silas, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So here's the point. When these men of God, the early apostles, were preaching, there were times when people said, what do I do now? I heard you. It's convicted my heart. What do I do? The response of Peter and response of Paul and I think the response of the New Testament is repent and believe that's it if you hear the truth of the gospel message 
The way to be saved is to repent and believe. Repentance sometimes is misunderstood. But it has to do with a heart of sorrow that realizes that your life is in rebellion against God. There's a brokenness in the heart that causes a desire to turn away from sin. At times, and I did a paper on this in seminary, there are people that would argue that repentance isn't a part of the gospel. And to the extent what they mean is you don't have to get your life in order before you're saved, of course that's true. But at the moment of your salvation, there should be a change of your heart and mind that says, I want to run away from what I used to be. I remember having a discussion with someone who tried to say to me that Jesus never gave a command relation to things. And I just turned to Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm always in good stead if I take Jesus' words. So if Jesus said repent, I'm pretty confident that I'm okay. And that brokenness says I can't keep living this way. God was right. My life is building up God's judgment and I hate it and I don't want to be this way. And this is not a sorrow of despair and despondency. It's not a turning from sin to hopelessness, sort of like the jailer who looked at the whole scenario and said, okay, I'm going to kill myself. That's not the type of sorrow that repentance produces. It's a sorrow that sees the answer in the gospel message that they just heard. It sees the answer in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.10, if you were to go there and study this text, you'd learn a lot about those things. You study this in counseling type courses. But it says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. It's an often overlooked fact. Probably you all are aware of this. Judas is the worst person in human history. We all know that. You know what? He felt bad about what he did. And he actually tried to return the money. He felt so bad about it. In Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That sounds really good. Except that it wasn't godly sorrow. It was just worldly guilt. And he went out and hanged himself. So, godly repentance when confronted with the reality of the gospel that a holy God is the judge of the universe and your life doesn't match up with his standards, a godly repentance is a true willingness to change, but it's coupled with a belief that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. Everything that's causing you sorrow in that moment of clarity when you see the cross and you see the gospel and you see yourself. It becomes clear to you by God's doing that Jesus paid it all. He died in our place. We deserve judgment. He experienced judgment. And the judgment that he endured in our place cleansed our hearts. 
Acts 15, 8 and 9 says, And God, who knows the heart, testifying to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. The cleansing of our souls, of our hearts, is part and parcel of repentance and belief. Now, in some respects... I've gone far enough down the road and quoted enough scripture that this probably doesn't sound that unusual to you. In fact, it, if you've been around the church and teaching, it probably sounds normal to you, at least from the teaching at Lakeside. But where things can get confusing is if we get so caught up in God's sovereignty that we don't keep everything in balance. And I'm going to use a personal illustration I don't always do, but to help make this point that I think is going to lead us to the proper understanding of our text this morning. I was saved, I believe, in earnest sometime in 1993. There's a lot that goes into the story that's not necessarily relevant to this morning, but I can still remember sitting... It was Shadow Mountain Community Church. David Jeremiah is the pastor. I can still remember where I was sitting on a particular morning. I don't remember the date. And it was an independent Baptist church. They did an altar call after every service. There was always a call for a response. And I remember sitting on the ground floor. We usually sat in the balcony later. But for this morning we were on the ground floor. I remember basically where we were. And during the altar call, the pastor was following up on a message from an Old Testament text. And I don't remember the text that was dealing with God's holiness. What I do remember is that he was talking about a change of heart that should cause you to want to be holy like God is holy. And even though I had called myself a Christian for years because I had prayed a prayer when I was a teenager, I realized that that desire was completely absent from my life. And it scared me to death. Because I knew at that moment If I died, I would have no defense before God and I would go to hell. And I believed at that moment with all my heart. I knew that Jesus had died for me. And even though my mind had done a highlight reel of the wickedness of my life, I knew that there was hope. And I knew... That when the pastor was saying, you must believe that I had to believe, and by God's grace, I believed. And my life was transformed. It truly was. Later in the year, I was baptized. I was excited to give a testimony. I was learning and growing. Debbie and I had an hour drive each way to church, and we were just loving it. And we got involved where we could. We lived a long way away. We got involved in a small group because the church was starting small groups. And we got involved and there was a godly couple. I thought of them at the time as older. They're probably mine and Debbie's age now. So, (laughs) But at the time we were a young married couple and I thought they were an older couple. And we had a great Bible study. We had a great thing. Learned a lot about marriage. But one evening... In their home, they were having a conversation about salvation. And I think it started in the study, but for some reason, Debbie and I were talking to them afterwards. 
And they were talking about only God being involved in salvation. That we had nothing to do with our salvation. It was all of God. God saved me and I had done nothing. And I was so confused, it rocked me to my core. Why is that? Because I had believed. What do you mean I didn't do anything? I believed. I was so confused. I had heard the gospel and I had believed and yet I was being told that really I wasn't a part of the equation in salvation. Debbie and I drove home and literally shed tears. Were we so dumb? Had we missed the gospel completely? What did it mean to be saved? And we got home and I remember just sitting on our bed and we opened up the Bible and we started going through scriptures after scriptures because I was trying to figure out, do I even know what it means to be saved? God was very gracious to us that night. Because by the time we were done, I was again assured that I was saved. And I don't remember all the verses we looked at, but I don't doubt some were like John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I really knew I had done this. I had heard the truth and for the first time in my life I really understood how it applied to a sinner like me and I did believe and when I believed according to the scriptures I had a promise of everlasting life all of this I think helps illustrate and understand what's occurring in verse 22 but I'm going to start this with a question. And I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but it's something for you to think about. If someone were to sit through one of our services or something like this, and they were to come up to you afterwards, and they were to say to you, what must I do to be saved? What's going to be your answer? Are you going to say to them, like Peter and Paul and Silas, repent and believe... Or would you answer like people, believe it or not, I'm not making this up. I'm not creating a straw man. I've heard people say this. What must I do to be saved? Well, there's nothing you can do. You're either part of the elect or you aren't. Hardly a hopeful call. <laughs> and it's hardly biblical. Yet some people have gotten so caught up in God's sovereignty, which I believe with all my heart that they neglect the reality that the gospel calls for a response repent and believe now I'm going to try and bring 
this discussion back together at this point so you can see how it applies to our text. And this is where God's sovereignty ties in. I understand things now that I didn't understand in 1993 or 94 as a new believer. I still don't fully understand entirely God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I don't know if in heaven I'll fully understand it. But this is where keeping things in perspective and the whole counsel of God is critical. John 6.44 says something that summarizes God's sovereignty in this whole process. John 6.44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In my story, here is what happened, and I believe this is accurate theologically, and I think it happened to you, even though the scenario would be different. I wasn't making something up. I really did believe on that Sunday. I really did, I believe, with all my heart, place my faith in Jesus, because I knew I was hopeless. There was nothing I could do to undo the years of wickedness that were flooding my mind. What I didn't understand was that as I was hearing the gospel, God was regenerating my heart. Titus 3, 5 says this, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, in other words, we didn't earn it, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is just playing out something promised in the Old Testament. For example, in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Here's my best explanation of what occurs. God calls his children to himself. On that Sunday, God was drawing me and I didn't know it. But he was drawing me through the word of the gospel. And as God got my attention, God was changing my heart. And the hard heart that I'd had for years that allowed me to claim to be a Christian and sin without any conscience of it, without any regret... God gave me a new heart. I didn't know it, but he gave me a new heart. And when he gave me a new heart, I did believe. I really did place my faith in the gospel. If God had not given me a new heart, I could not have believed in a biblical salvific sense. But he did. And I did. Such that at that moment, I could respond to the question, what must Joe do to be saved? I knew I've got to repent and believe. And I did. It couldn't have happened the prior Sunday. Or the Sunday before that. I didn't have a new heart. 
But the fact remains, I did believe the truth. In fact, if you don't believe the truth, you will not be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12 says, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Believing the truth is critical. So now, after all that time, let's go back to 1 Peter. And let's look at that verse again. Peter says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Here's what I believe Peter is saying. And I'm going to paraphrase it in my imperfect abilities to give the sense of the meaning. I think what he's saying is, Since you have repented and believed the gospel... And your sins have been wiped away. I think what Peter is saying is that when you ask the question, what must I do to be saved? You answered it. And you obeyed. You were told you need to repent and believe and you repented and believed. And as promised, because you repented and believed, you have forgiveness of your sins. You have a clean heart. Your sins have been wiped away. Again, he's not ignoring the fact that God drew and God regenerated. But the fact remains, if you are a child of God, you did obey the gospel. You repented and you believed. And that act purified your souls, not because of your power, but because the power of God in regenerating your heart and because of the payment by Jesus of the penalty on the cross, you have been purified. Now, that's the best I can do. And I pray that I haven't confused anybody. And when we come back next week, we're going to see the outgrowth of that, the so what. Both what's already occurred and what should occur in the future in relation to loving one another. But at this point, I'm going to close us in prayer. We have a few minutes to share prayer requests. Please join me as I close our time. Dear Heavenly Father, I... Thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for saving me. I thank you for giving me a heart so that I could respond in obedience to the truth and my soul could be purified. I thank you, Lord, for working in me to draw me to yourself so that I could respond appropriately to the gospel message. And I thank you for all my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in this room who had the same experience. They heard the gospel and they believed. I thank you, Lord, for the work you did that we didn't see of regenerating our hearts and drawing us, all those things that we didn't even know about. I know for myself, Lord, I didn't even understand those things for years, but they're true. I pray, Lord, that in light 
of our salvation in light of our obedient response to repent and believe, you'd help us see in the weeks ahead how to live that out. Specifically, Lord, in terms of our love for other Christians who also experienced the same cleansing we did. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone who's confused by any of this, that you'd clarify things. I pray that if I've turned things inside out, that you would untangle them, Lord. But I pray that you would help each one of us truly have a reverent attitude of thankfulness for enabling us to respond to the truth and obedience. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.